I think we're uniquely positioned to make a real impact and a real contribution on a big scale. Um, and we should take advantage of that opportunity. I know I, for one, am inspired by the collaborative network, despite a lot of suffering that's going on with COVID. I think a lot of people have come together and been inspired to make an impact to help people. Welcome to the Coronavirus Business Response Series of Inside Reproductive Health. Here, you'll be updated on the latest insights on managing and owning a fertility business or IVF center during the COVID-19 pandemic. We put out free podcasts, webinars, and articles as soon as new topics arise, so make sure to subscribe to stay updated. The best way to help us in return is to share this episode with someone in the fertility field that would find it useful. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. So I'll introduce our, our guests and we'll talk about the study that we are here to discuss today and what it will mean for patient relations, what it will mean for the community. Um, it's the ASPIRE study, which is assessing, assessing the safety of pregnancy in the coronavirus pandemic. It is about the impact of the safety of pregnant women and their babies, but particularly with health, uh, particularly with relation to COVID-19 and the first trimester. And so I would like to introduce our guests who are uh, a part of UCSF study. Um, and that's Dr. Marcel Cedars and Dr. Eleni Joswa, who some of you know very well and some of you might be meeting for the first time. Dr. Cedars, Dr. Joswa, Marcel, Eleni, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you. Thanks for having us. My friend Eduardo Harrington that recommended this topic to me. And when he told me about this study, he was fairly confident that this is the only study like it going on in the world. Can you tell me about why that sword came to you all then? How did this, uh, how did it end up being UCSF and particularly the REI division at UCSF that chose to take on this study? Yeah, I, I would say that I'm not sure the sword came to us so much as we jumped on it ourselves, but we have obviously as a reproductive endocrinology community been facing a brand new reality, a brand new world with the emergence of this pandemic only months ago of a virus never before seen by our species. And so a lot of really critical questions have been coming up that are immediately um, urgent and relevant to our patients, to our practice of medicine. And we uh, realized we're in a unique position as fertility specialists to answer some of those really important questions that have not yet been addressed and are really hard to address technically. And with that, I'm referring specifically to first trimester pregnancy exposures for the impact of potential viral infection. So we know that the first trimester is this critical window during which point uh, developing pregnancy, the fetus gets all of its organ system set up. The placenta, which doesn't quite get the reputation for how amazing and critical it is, gets set up in the first trimester and that kind of dictates the trajectory of the pregnancy and fetal growth throughout. And yet generally the first trimester has been historically inaccessible to research because when women get pregnant in the wild, they generally can't get in with their obstetricians until maybe 10, 12 weeks along, at which point 
all of these critical processes have already taken place. And so our position as a reproductive community is that we often follow patients from the moment of conception. We participate in that moment of conception and we have access and systematic tracking of women really on in pregnancy. And that's a really unique resource for something like examining the effects of a virus during a critical window of pregnancy. So we found that opportunity and thought that there's no one better positioned than the community of fertility providers and this network we have through SART across the country and through our clinics to ask these questions really systematically and, and get this critical, otherwise inaccessible information. So is that mainly because it, it, to your point, the, it's the REI community who is serving pregnant women in the first trimester. Typically, they're not going into their OBGYN before 10 weeks typically. So is, is that the main reason? Because simply because the REI community is more likely to have access to these patients? Well, I think we have access to a subset of these patients. Obviously, the, the percent of patients who get pregnant who used fertility care is a relatively small percentage of the total number of pregnant patients. So in an ideal world, we'd have a system where all women get prenatal care beginning very early in pregnancy. But the reality is we don't have that. And so while this isn't a study about fertility per se, we saw the SART clinics, for Assisted Reproductive Technology as this incredibly valuable and unique consortium of clinics that do see women, as Eleni said, from the moment of conception, and then we follow them very closely. And so it gives us this window. For instance, with SARS-CoV-1, which is not the, the coronavirus we're dealing with now, in the very small study, 57% of patients had a miscarriage in the first trimester. Well, if you don't see patients till 10 weeks of pregnancy, you'd never know that. And so we really felt like it was so critical to capture early complications, but then also, as Dr. Jaswas said, to understand the biology of fetal development and placental development, which happens in those first critical 10 to 12 weeks, be able to find out when the infection occurs and try to understand what happens if there's infection, whether somebody's symptomatic or asymptomatic. And without doing a very large scale study like this, you won't pick up asymptomatic infections and you won't pick up women early in pregnancy. So we're really using SART and the SART clinics and asking for their help as a tool to give us this valuable piece of information that actually will apply to all women and all pregnancies. This isn't a clinical show. Most of our topics are about business development or patient relations or practice management. The reason why I was so interested in this study is because there's so much anxiety out there regarding what are the impacts of COVID-19 and pregnancy? And it is impacting fertility centers. It is causing some people to delay treatment. It, it, it could be a, uh, it could be reason for fertility preservation. So before we talk about the potential implications, I'm, I'm curious about this 
sample size. How big do you want to, this to be? I mean, you talked about the scale, Dr. Cedars. How, how big of a scale do you want it to be? And where are you getting your participants from? So our goal is that we recruit 10,000 women, uh, which is a lofty goal, but the SART clinics alone see about 100,000 pregnancies a year. So we feel like that's doable. We also have a validation cohort that we're recruiting from the community uh, so that we can see if the things we find in the infertility population apply to non-infertility patients. But if we, we don't really know, and that's part of the problem with doing a study about the coronavirus is there's so little that's known. And one of the unique aspects of SART is because it's a national consortium. And if you look from state to state on the impact of coronavirus and the prevalence, for instance, in New York City versus the prevalence in Montana, we're gonna be able to look around the country. But if you figure maybe 3% across the board of the population, even with 10,000 women, that's 300. So you have to recruit a very large population in order to have enough positive patients or patients who've been exposed to the virus to get meaningful data. And, that's, and because we want asymptomatic patients, we have to screen, we have to enroll people with pregnancy as the enrollment and not coronavirus as the enrollment. So talk to us a little bit about the, the methodology. The pregnancy is, is the main criteria for enrollment, and then you're testing for coronavirus. How are you doing that? Yeah, I, I would first just add that we've been really encouraged by SART so far in this incredible community because in our first two or three weeks, 76 clinics from 26 states already partnered with this study and are you know, featured on our website. So we're really encouraged that everybody is really truly in this together. As far as participation goes in the study design and methodology, like Dr. Cedar said, this is a prospective cohort study. So the only eligibility is you're between four and 10 weeks pregnant at the time of enrollment and then we follow you so mo we assume most women almost all will be healthy in the beginning and we follow them through pregnancy ideally most remain healthy throughout their pregnancy but there will inevitably be cases of COVID-19 the way that we are following and tracking those uh, cases and pinpointing the exposure with regard to gestational age is through symptom tracking. So using mobile phones, participants answer push notifications with brief symptom screening tools, as well as questionnaires, self-reported health outcomes data. But importantly, we're following serology. So women will be shipped packages with blood spot cards and are able to use lancets at home to prick their finger 
place blood samples each gestational week through the first trimester on these cards that they can then ship back to us at the end of each trimester. And we're able to actually assess for antibodies, serologies, so IgG, IgM responses with regards to where they were in their pregnancy at the time of exposure. But it's pretty amazing technology that doesn't require inter any increase in risk and interfacing with the medical system can all be done at home in the safety of one's own home and then just shipped back to us to run the assays. And so you uh, all are having clinics referring patients to the study. Um, has that just been through SART at this point? Has it been direct to clinic outreach? I think we've done both. SART was very generous. We went through the SART Research Committee and they were very generous, the SART Research Committee and the SART Executive Committee to send a letter out to all medical directors of SART clinics about the study. And then we have specifically reached out to programs that either we know people who are involved in those programs. We're also very interested in trying to make sure we enroll in states that have mandated coverage because we are concerned if you look at coronavirus risk, risk with COVID, both severity of disease and death, there's a very strong socioeconomic racial component to that. And so we're concerned that our population may be skewed in a direction that limits our ability to, to have uh, application to a diverse community. And so we have been reaching out in states that have mandated coverage because their socio-demographic as well as ethnic racial breakdowns are different perhaps than states that don't have a mandate uh, or in states that have higher diversity racial ethnic groups, Florida, for instance, or other states that might allow us to enrich the cohort with a more diverse population. So it's been both through the SART uh, infrastructure, but as well as our reaching out to clinics. And then Eleni can talk with you about the sort of community outreach we've done to broaden the implications as well. Yeah, and so like Dr. Cedar said, having a really representative sample is a priority for this study because the goal again, as she said, is not about specific implications for infertility per se. It's getting information on pregnancy by leveraging this absolutely unique asset of the SART infrastructure and the REI community to unlock this important time period of pregnancy. So we get information and answers that are important for people all over the world um, who are thinking about pregnancy, who are pregnant and otherwise. And so, uh, in the community outreach arm, we've had uh, deployed some targeted strategies, either through influencers using social media, or, you know, you said Dr. Harrington gave you this idea to talk about it in the first place. He's been a champion with outreach, both by social media and other important people who get a good visibility from stakeholders. We believe that really everybody are stakeholders for this, whether it's pregnant patients, families, policymakers, obstetricians, this information will help inform a lot of our behavior and our care for our patients. Um, and so we're using targeted strategies to achieve the most representative sample 
to get data that applies for everyone. Uh, I think someday Dr. Harrison will have the following needed to fill a 10,000 person study just from a, a single post. But right now, are you tracking where where participants come from if it's if it's community referral or referred by a clinic or or come through uh, another channel or do you not care as long as you get your cohort as diverse as you feel will be representative? I think that real-time tracking is really informative and helpful in guiding our efforts to ensure that we achieve this representative and applicable sample. Um, we've been surprised because some of our targeted outreach, you know, we also spoke with Fertility IQ. We've had some interviews through local news and media and are taking advantage of a lot of different opportunities. Then there's like a thread on Reddit that we had no idea existed and a huge deluge of participants came through that. So some things we can control and others we can't, but we are certainly tracking in real time where our participants are coming from in order to achieve and redirect our scientific goals. Um, so, well, that makes me curious is that a, a study this big uh, has to be expensive and there, there are agencies that specialize simply in clinical trials and other study enrollment for other studies. Uh, how, how are you all being funded at, at this point? Is this all coming from UCSF? Is there, are there government agencies or, or other healthcare bodies that are a part of this right now? Well, that's a great question because it is an incredibly expensive study just based on size alone and the resources to, you know, something as simple as put these blood specimen collection kits together and send them out, but do that for 10,000 women over potentially, you know, 16 timeframes throughout a pregnancy. And so it is an incredibly large project. Um, we've had some generous donors who've contributed to the program who have faith in the, the questions and the, our ability to answer these critical questions. We, I just, right before I flipped over here, finished uh, the budget for an NIH grant that Dr. Jaswa and myself and Dr. Huddleston, who's not with us today, are submitting for a June 5th deadline. Um, but yes, <laughs> unfortunately, um, NICHD, which is the institute at the NIH that really does uh, studies on mothers and children or women and children, did not get uh, initial funding to specifically to investigate COVID. So they didn't have any specific COVID funds. So we're restricted to a relatively small amount, which will not cover the, the really the, the crux of the study. Uh, we have uh, information, we're working with the CDC um, to try to get additional funding. And then we've been working with our chair, uh, Amy Murtha in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences and with the Development Office to try to raise money because this study is so critically important. Uh, we feel like we can't, most studies you wait, you have the money and then you do the study, but because of this crisis time we're in with the pandemic, we feel like we need to move this study forward. And it's a little bit, you know, instead of if you build it, they will come. It's like, you know, if we're, we're like, 
going to the end and then coming back to the beginning. So it is a, a little bit daunting in that sense, but it's so critically important. We feel like we just had to move forward and people so far have been incredibly generous helping to support this project. Yeah, it certainly has been a lesson, not only in the science, but the advocacy, because it is so crucial that women and children don't get left behind. You know, this isn't our first pandemic, and certainly it won't be our last. I think when you look at what we learned from related coronaviruses, so two prior coronavirus epidemics within the past 20 years, SARS and MERS, you can count the number of women on your fingers that got pregnant and were recorded as outcomes in the literature. So it was really a missed opportunity because nobody made it a priority to look at the impact of these viruses on pregnancies and, and offspring of pregnancies during those times. And so we just don't believe that that's okay, that now is the time that we need to get this information and, and Hopefully society will catch up and like Dr. Seymour said, we've been lucky enough to have some generous sponsors and fundraisers, but we're, we're have ongoing crowdfunding and are always looking for more to make this vision a reality and make sure, like I said, women and children aren't left behind. Because this is going to be a long study. You no, know? you're going through, I mean, we're, we're just at the very beginning. We haven't even left the port yet, have we? There's, uh, uh, you're following the infant up until 18 months, is that right? Yes, and so, so our goal is to recruit the women, the pregnant women, between now and the end of February. Uh, and so that's a pretty ambitious short timeline. Again, this is why we're really counting on our, our colleagues across the country to help with that. Um, and then we want to follow because there could be pregnancy complications obviously the newborns, and because of potential concern about neurologic development with first trimester infections, we really want to follow through 18 months where you start to get some of those more subtle outcomes that you might miss if you stop at delivery. We're, we won't have final findings of this study in three years. Probably three to five years, but there are, you know, we can answer questions about the first trimester very quickly, because if we enroll everyone by February of next year, by, you know, this time next year, we'll have first trimester data. So we'll have information fairly quickly on some aspects of it. Uh, and the more resources we have, there's, as I said, we're interested in mechanisms such as looking at inflammation, particularly because inflammation is so critical to development of the placenta. So the more, you know, one of the nice things about these blood cards is we can bank them and then we can utilize them for future analyses. So, so part of our goal now is to build the infrastructure and get all the material, get the, 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 type of questionnaire data and blood data and pregnancy outcome data. And then, you know, as we garner resources to hopefully fill out those pieces and those questions that will help us know how best to care for these women and their children. And as Dr. Jaswa said, the next time something like this comes, we'll have better information. And it's all about information. It's information for that that are, that's going to enable 
people deciding, should I build a family now? Should I wait? These are really critical questions. And it's very hard as a physician to counsel a patient when we just don't have that information. Yeah, it, it undermines the whole idea of informed consent when there's really no information. But we're hopeful that through this infrastructure, like Dr. Cedar said, we're able to create really a unique, one-of-a-kind biobank just with these blood specimens alone of precisely dated gestational windows in pregnancy and really offer to the world something that hasn't really been done like this before in order to answer these urgent questions. And so how do you envision sharing the preliminary data? Is it something that you plan to do regular updates? If so, when does that start? Is it something that you'll, as you come across what you believe starting to becoming a trend, you'll write about that? How do you plan to update the preliminary data? Well, I think that it's, it's we want to make sure there's certain, there's different things to update on. One is just the progress of the study, and we really want to engage the participants in the study themselves because they're critical to what we're doing. We want to engage the programs to see the value. I mean, from a program standpoint, we talk to our colleagues around the country, and as Dr. Joswa said, we don't know what to tell our patients. And so for some of the people who are collaborating with us, they look at this as, as sort of, if you get pregnant, you need to do this study because this is how we're all gonna get answers. And it's really part of all of us being part of the solution. And so I think there'll be regular updates on the website and newsletters we're gonna send out quarterly that update both programs and our participants in terms of how the study is progressing and then I think we want to make sure that the, when we start to produce data, scientific data, that it goes through the same rigor, that we're not getting out there so fast that we don't believe that we have data that we can support. So, so there's different types of data that will come out as the study progresses, but it's going to be critically important to maintain a dialogue both with practices and with our participants through the course of the project because both of them are so critical to our ability to do this and to get these answers that are so sorely needed by the population right now. We appreciate certainly the urgency of this information and, and want to make whatever scientific conclusions we can in real time, but there's certainly a balance because just the same way that some of these tests were bad tests, Having, using a bad test and changing your behavior on the basis of that is probably worse than not testing at all. So we want to be really mindful, systematic, and measured with um, the data as far as from scientific rigor perspective. So understanding that the information we produce and interpret and will potentially change, affect behavior. And so the goal is to be as scientifically rigorous as possible. Hey everyone, it's Griffin. This is the break in the show where normally I do a little commercial for our small engagement. And we do have a small engagement that's relevant to the COVID-19 business response. If you're cutting marketing, if you're trying to bring back your people as quickly as possible, if you're trying to build a cache of treatment ready patients, we do have that. But I would rather use this 
break to just ask if you find this useful, if you would share it with a colleague, either via email or on social media. We're doing everything we can to put out as many webinars, articles, free podcasts, all free resources to include as many people from the field as we possibly can to give you resources on how to manage and operate a fertility business or an IVF center during this time. And it's changing so quickly. So if you find this useful, I would really appreciate it if you would please share it with a colleague via email or via social media and help us grow the audience, but only if you find it valuable. And hopefully you are and back to your program. What are some of the implications for fertility centers? Uh, if, if you do come across, if three years from now or earlier, you're starting to find bad news, if there are real negative effects because of COVID-19 in the first trimester of pregnancy, what does that mean for the REI clinic? Well, I don't know that it means anything different for the REI clinic than it does the general population. There's been no prohibition from ACOG, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is kind of the parent organization for obstetrics and gynecology that has suggested that families should delay childbearing or should not get pregnant now. You know, the concerns that were raised with Zika, for instance, where it became very clear very quickly about this birth defect. And we would counsel patients about avoiding pregnancy if they went to high Zika areas. There hasn't been that kind of concern or level of risk with coronavirus. And so I think that from a sort of a liability standpoint, as Dr. Jaswa said, we, we don't have information. I think it's part of the reason that as a community uh, and um, on the ASRM task force that looked at the coronavirus, and it's part of the reason we suggested a pause in treatment in March, because there was this new virus. It looked like it was coming to the US in gangbusters, if you looked at New York. And we, we didn't know what the risk would be. We do know that a fever in the first trimester from any cause can increase the risk for miscarriage and can increase the risk for birth defects. And we knew fever was such a prominent component of coronavirus or of COVID, of the infection itself, that we felt like we had to put a pause we still don't have a lot of answers, but one of the things the pause did, and, and everybody has seen those graphs, and we flattened that curve. The good thing about flattening the curve is we're not going to overwhelm our healthcare system. The second thing about flattening the curve is the individual risk of getting COVID is quite low in most places. And, but it also means the tail for that spread of coronavirus through our country is quite long. And it may be 12 to 18 months before we have herd immunity or a vaccine. And so with a decreased individual risk and knowing this long timeline, it's very hard to tell certainly our infertile patients, but even general patients or general women who are thinking about getting pregnant Usually it's one of those things when you're ready to get pregnant, you're kind of ready to get pregnant. And so to say, nope, got to wait 18 months to do that, that's a pretty hard stop. And so we felt like it's a balance and we still caution patients, all the things that you should be doing anyway, good hand, you know, hand washing, 
face masks, social distancing, that's going to need to continue for quite some time in our society. And so it's, it's a balance as everything in life is. So I don't think this is going to come back to fertility clinics any more than it will come back to the obstetrician or anyone else who's making a decision about whether this is the right time to build a family. I wonder if those implications are the same, though, because the obstetrician doesn't necessarily—I mean, the obstetrician practices obstetrics, but perhaps also practices gynecology, where the REI's job is to get people pregnant. You mentioned that there wasn't any mandate from the CDC or, or guidance, I should say, from the CDC or the WHO about the general population desisting in attempting to get pregnant. But what if there was a study with 10,000 people done over the course of three years that found that, that the harm was significant? Is, is there not a different implication for REI clinics? I don't think so, because I can't make decisions today based on data I have three years from now. And I can't be held to a standard of having to know that information in the context of a decision I make today. I think we counsel all our patients about what we don't know. And there's frankly much more, I mean, we have some very reassuring data about COVID. One, it doesn't look like women who are pregnant get sicker when they get COVID. And that's important because even something as simple as the common flu when you're pregnant and you get the flu, you can get much sicker than someone who's not pregnant. So that's good news. And, and it's not that you don't get sick, but you don't get sick at any greater rate than a woman who's not pregnant. The second good thing we know is it doesn't look as though there's direct fetal or, or direct transmission to the fetus, although there have been a few studies that have started to question that, but there's certainly, it's not a widespread phenomena in terms of when people have looked at amniotic fluid and they've looked at the fetus or the newborn themselves. So those are all reassuring things. The kinds of things you can find in the first trimester can be very major abnormalities like you saw with Zika, or they can be, which we don't think we're going to see with COVID based on the data that are available, although granted very limited data on first trimester infections, even from China when the virus was new in December. But these children, these pregnancies have had ultrasounds and there's no obvious developmental or, or um, anatomic abnormalities. So there's lots of good things and, or reassuring things we know. The kind of things we're looking for are much more subtle and we won't know them for many years to come. Even if the findings do conclude that there is harm in the first trimester, that by that point there would be a va vaccine. I suppose that not asking REI clinics to make decisions now based on data that they from three years from now, but if in fact uh, that that data. Uh, sure. I mean, it's like now we know that rubella or German measles, if you get infected when you're pregnant, can cause birth defects. So one of the things we do with all of our infertile patients is we check to make sure they've been vaccinated and are immune to rubella. So if it turns out that there's a risk with COVID, we may add that to our list along with varicella or chickenpox and rubella 
we'd add COVID. So uh, there are things we're going to do that we will then apply, whether we're in a gynecology practice or an REI practice, but we can't be held to a standard for information that we don't have. Yeah, and I would even add that I think there's more harm to not doing the study and discovering those risks than actually getting information to empower that decision-making, both for patients' autonomy and determining whether or not they are willing to accept a known risk is very different than accepting an unknown risk, and also being able potentially to change their behavior, whether it's by social distancing or hopefully a vaccine will become available, understanding these risks, then you can truly participate in shared decision-making in an informed way. And perhaps there won't be risks and, and our discoveries are reassuring or even in a fantasy world, there's something protective about pregnancy. All of that information will be really empowering regardless of whether there are potential harms or not for patients to make these decisions when I think it's the fear of the unknown that can be the most disempowering and unsettling for folks. So just being able to have trustworthy data to understand how to balance risks and benefits and potentially how to change behaviors to offer protections will be really important. Before we conclude, I have just some questions because we do have some practice owners on this call. We have nurses. Uh, we have practice managers, and we'll have many, many more listening to the podcast. Uh, they'd like to enroll patients in that. How do they do that in a way that's helpful to you and easy for them? Yeah, our goal is certainly to make this process as easy on collaborators as possible, knowing that everyone's busy and has a lot on their plate. The primary role of collaborating clinics is just to direct patients to our website, which is aspire.ucsf.edu. And from there, the patients self-enroll, submit their own contact information, and we take everything over from that point. So the goal is just that practices encourage their patients to sign up. Um, by visiting our website, we send color flyers and other recruitment materials to all collaborating clinics to make this, again, super easy, where the whole role of the collaboration is just to help get the word out and encourage folks to participate. The IRB at University of California, San Francisco has made it such that collaborating clinics don't need their own independent local IRB review. Again, they're just connecting um, patients to this interface to, to sign up for the, for the study. And what would you say a little bit more about what's, what's in it for them? I think that uh, one, uh, one implication I can think of is that, you know, at the seven and a half week ultrasound, people are probably getting asked the question, what if I get COVID-19 or my coworker had it last week and she wasn't wearing a mask. And so I, I think there's probably a lot of anxiety at that point point that REIs are hearing and IVF coordinators and nurses are hearing. Not to say that this would necessarily alleviate the anxiety, but it is something where previously we just didn't have anything that we could give someone as, as feeling in control. I think that if you are between four to 10 weeks pregnant and this is the, the concern being relayed, that this is something that fertility centers can direct you to. What else would you say is in it for the center? Well, I think it lets their patients know that they care about this, that they understand it's an issue, and that they want to be part of the solution. 
because right now we have a big question and a big problem. And I think that programs by joining with the Aspire Network can show that they want to be part of the solution. And as you said, it empowers the patients to be part of the solution. And with our system of frequent questionnaires, they may pick up on symptoms that they didn't know they had that are relevant. Those questions change as our knowledge about COVID changes, for instance, absence of you know, smell or things that weren't on the COVID checklist two months ago that are on the COVID checklist now. So they're gonna be getting updates and in our, you know, our quarterly newsletters and on the website, as we gain more information, as soon as we have information and we can validate it, they're gonna have rapid, easy access, both the programs so they can share it with their staff and patients and the participants will have that information. So I think both the sort of sense of being part of the solution and when their patients ask those questions, being able to say, you know, we don't know, but this is how we're gonna find out and how we're gonna be able to answer that. Dr. Joss, what would you conclude in? Uh, would you have anything to, to add to, about the study that you would want the REI community to know? I just think, um, you know, there's a lot of, darkness in the world right now. And it's nice to be able to participate in something to make progress for everyone, to move the needle forward, to get urgent information, to care for our patients, our pregnant women, their families, their future babies. I think we're uniquely positioned to make a real impact and a real contribution on a big scale. Um, and we should take advantage of that opportunity. I know I, for one, am inspired by the collaborative network, despite a lot of suffering that's going on with COVID, I think a lot of people have come together and been inspired to make an impact, to help people to inform their practice and their patients in, in, a, in a positive way and have been just inspired by people coming together from all over the country to make this a reality. And, and so I think uh, by participating as a network together, we will be able to achieve a lot. So I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Dr. Jeswa, Dr. Cedars, Eleni, Marcel, thank you both so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you. thank you so much for giving us a voice here. You've been listening to the Coronavirus Business Response Series on Inside Reproductive Health. If you find our free resources to be valuable, we ask that you share this episode on social media or with a colleague in the fertility field. Subscribe for the latest insights on managing and owning an IVF center or fertility business during the COVID-19 pandemic at fertilitybridge.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts.